Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Angela. Angela, how are you this morning? I am excellent. You're excellent this morning? Yes. Why are you excellent this morning? Because yesterday I officially um, have launched uh, the new Guardian curriculum that I'm developing. Oh, okay. A gardening curriculum. So this is something that you do once a week when you're in school for one class once a week kind of thing? Uh, so basically, um, I am part of the Adventist Agricultural Association. Yes. And um, I was like, this is the brilliant brains. And I know a lot of schools that have wanted to do a gardening program, but they don't know how to do it because it's during an academic school year, which is during the winter. So it's totally different kind of gardening than what you're used to in the summer. You need row coverage or a hoop house some way. Um, to grow in the winter and um, the Lord bought a team and officially the writer got done and we are now looking for teachers and homeschool mothers to pilot our program and test it out this school year and we'll officially launch it August 2021. Are, are homeschool fathers allowed to do this as well? Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Most assuredly. That is Awesome. Okay, yeah. so this is all based around winter crops then? Yes, definitely. So um, it's not like your tomatoes or your melons or the things that get kids really excited. It's greens. Primarily it's greens. Carrots actually do really well. They taste, they sweeten up after a frost. Radishes, um, strawberries um, are in your, later in your growing season as well. You could be harvesting those in May, but uh, mainly it's greens. So you're really going to get creative with your kids to use greens. <laughs> I remember when I was in school growing broad beans what else did we grow? I can't remember. But I remember growing broad beans. So if you're a fan of broad beans, we did grow. I think we grew broad, broad beans and peas. Um, yeah, I think gardening is just an amazing thing to happen in school. So when we come back, I think I'm going to ask Angela more about her um, amazing curriculum that she's put together because I'm just super excited by it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so I really want to talk about. I really, I'm, I'm so interested in this agricultural program that you've put together. Mm. Um, now, obviously, well, my big question is: Is the curriculum designed for Florida or Michigan? <laughs> Excellent question. <laughs> um, or is it designed for? New South Wales, seeing as it was written here in New South Wales. Actually, it wasn't. The uh, story began... It's not designed for New... <laughs> How can that be possible? So the story began a couple of years ago when I started working at a high school that had um, three beautiful unused greenhouses. Well, they were being used, but not like with the students fully being all participating. And so um, I went to my first Adventist Agricultural Association convention, and I said, wait a second, this is all the brains, farmers who have been trying and failing and trying and failing and succeeding. And um, I said, it's time that they help us come up with something because teachers have a passion for putting their kids in the garden, but they don't have the time or necessarily the know-how to make it happen. So a couple of years later, Adventist, uh, this Adventist Agriculture Association funded a team to get together this last summer in June, so um, a year ago. And um, the Lord just gave me a, like a vision for all the components that were needed. And after five days, we had a strong structure. Um, but then the devil attacked and um, the people that were supposed to write, <clears throat> excuse me, were not able to, they, they got busy. And then um, because of COVID-19, um, a nurse, which was on my team, um, decided to take the time off and to write. 
So she has solely written this. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And um, she actually was, it was a blessing because all the nurses, because people aren't coming to the doctor anymore or to the hospital unless they really have to. So many nurses have been laid off during this time. Mm. And she was getting a very small stipend um, from the association to write this, but it provided funds when she wouldn't have had any. Fantastic. So she finished it. We have our 18 lessons. And uh, yeah, we're just looking for people. And get this, she shared it on the um, Seventh-day Adventist Homeschool Network. She shared it on the Adventist Agricultural Association. And within 24 hours, she had 60 people respond that they were interested in piloting. And get this, we had homeschoolers in Australia. We actually have people on every continent that have responded um, interested in this curriculum. Have you met my good friend Rod Bailey? I have not. You Okay, so if you are listening in, you need to look this guy up. Uh, lives um, on North New South Wales coast and is super into agriculture and um, uh, and also education as well. Um, so he's run an educational institution up there for uh, quite a number of years. And yeah, very involved with the um, Agricultural Association and particularly one of the founders of uh, that here in Australia. So awesome. yeah, I think, I think you That's need fantastic. to meet this guy. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, so Florida or Michigan? Okay, so the way this curriculum works is anybody who's anybody um, can go through this curriculum and it shows you how to, basically you have a green space next to your house or next to your school and you're like, I want to garden. So we talk about the different sizes you can choose, small, medium, or large. Um, if you just want to do small with row coverage or if you want to take on the whole hoop house. Um, and yes, you can do it in Michigan or in Florida. It doesn't matter. There's just definitely regional principles, of course, that apply. But the general idea... Um, is in this curriculum. It's designed for high school level because we want to make it a certified high school class. So high schools around the world could have a gardening program that's organized, structured, and turns out gardeners. At the end, um, they each have one of these workbooks and it would be their guide to be able to always farm no matter where they are in the world. Okay, so for for, uh, Australians who are not so familiar with um, American geography, uh, a Michigan winter, how long does it last and what does it look like? Well, you know, um, <laughs> we start... Because you're from Michigan, so I'm going to go I with am. Michigan, which is, um, yep. yeah. So we're surrounded by lakes, you know, and so we tend to lose the sun around November, um, sometimes in October. Uh, lately, honestly, we haven't got our first snowfall till Christmas. Um, this year, we didn't even get it till late January, but we got one in April, so kind of crazy, but normally you get snow in December. It's pretty cold though in October. <laughs> Definitely freezing in November. When do the when do the lakes start to get ice on the surface? Um, December or January. Yeah, like you can start walking. Oh, out. Really? Yeah. Wisconsin. I didn't realize Wisconsin was that much colder. Well, you know, honestly, it's been years since we've gotten it warmer or colder at the beginning. Uh, okay. It used to be definitely October, November, but now yeah. you're looking at December. Um, and then by January, you can be out walking on the frozen waves of Lake Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, in, in Wisconsin, where my in-laws come from, um, you generally start to see ice on the lakes around October and your first snow in November. And then that's going to last for, you know, three or four months, at least from there through. Okay, so my big question is, Yes. When the lakes are frozen solid and the ground is frozen mm. and there's snow on the ground, yes. how do you grow crops? 
So that's why you have it covered in some way. Okay, but a <laughs> thin sheet of plastic or glass, that surely is not going to provide enough heat to grow, grow crops at that time of year. No, um, you're definitely going to have a more limited growing season in Michigan as opposed to Florida, definitely. Um, but your greens are pretty hardy. In fact, kale can almost survive anything. <laughs> okay, so grow lots of kale there. We hope we kale, have collard likes kale. greens, bok choy. You're going to be experimenting with a lot of different things with this curriculum, probably greens that you haven't seen before. Um, and I can't promise you, yeah, you probably will not be harvesting in the middle of a blizzard. Um, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But the, uh, the point of the row coverage is just to extend your growing season and be able to start planting things sooner. So I worked at a, oh, sorry, I studied at a, a college there for a couple of years that wanted to have a growing season through winter and they actually had a wood furnace inside their hothouse. Have you seen much of that kind of um, thing taking place? And, and obviously, you know, it was a very, very large hothouse and they just, they were growing bananas on the inside of it. Yeah, um, definitely. We heated one of the greenhouses where I worked um, and it's just really expensive. And so that's not the way we're constructing this program because we want it to be feasible for most people. So it's just the idea of expanding your growing season, not necessarily making it possible that you're harvesting all year long, but at least you're able to garden during the school academic year. Okay, I think this is, this is a curriculum that uh, everybody who is listening in today needs to find out about. Okay, so how, if somebody wants to have a look at this curriculum, if there's some homeschooler out there or a school teacher who's like, yep, we're going to dig up our oval and plant stuff. Awesome. Um, <laughs> where do they go? How do they find out about it? Yeah, so they can look on um, the Adventist Agricultural Association Facebook page or they can just email us at curriculum at adventistag.org. Okay, so Adventist Agricultural Association, does that mean that you have to be an Adventist to use the curriculum? Definitely <laughs> no, not. Of course not. Definitely Everybody not. can grow vegetables in their backyard. Can, can, is this useful for somebody who is just sort of never done any gardening before and goes, you know what, I'm going to try and dig something up? Is Now, that's exactly the audience I would like to vet this kind of program because um, so often there are people who are passionate but don't have the know-how. And so I want to make sure that this program is for that kind of person. All right, so if you have dirt, then get in contact with Angela, uh, get in contact with Adventist Agricultural Association, grab the curriculum that uh, Angela has put together and give it a go and let us know all about it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, we have a new monthly interview that we started a couple of months ago, Dr. Paul Wood. Um, who is a GP who is going to come on and uh, talk to us on a regular basis about health subjects. Dr. Paul Wood, welcome to the show. Morning, Lyle. Now, I understand this morning we're talking about alcohol consumption and disease risk and particularly the issue of moderate alcohol consumption. Um, Okay, so there's a paper that's just come out on this particular topic and I'm wondering whether you can just sort of take us through that, uh, the findings of the paper and give us some comments on alcohol consumption and I guess really explore the idea of, you know, is there such a thing as moderate alcohol consumption and is there any safe level of drinking alcohol? So, yeah, maybe just start us off with uh, um, the paper that has uh, come out and we'll go for it from there. Sure. This was an interesting study because over the years there's been research looking at this concept of moderate alcohol consumption and, and potential health benefits from um, from drinking moderately. 
And uh, this was a study that was done in Canada looking at um, some 4 million cases of um, hospital admissions and, and death um, in, in Canada. And what they looked at was whether people were drinking within the recommended guidelines or outside of those guidelines. And uh, what they found was that more than 50%, so more than half of all alcohol attributable cancer deaths were experienced by those who are drinking within the guidelines, um, which I guess calls into question, you know, if we drink within the guidelines, can we avoid um, these these health risks? And I guess the, the, the whole... Um, research that's looking at the benefits of alcohol goes back a while to what was called the French paradox, where they noticed that um, people in France had fairly low rates of heart disease, and they wondered whether this could be due to their red wine consumption. Yeah, um, and that's a, that's a that's a, that's something that's been around, floating around for a long time. And the question that's always gone through my head is: is they have low, low rates of heart disease because they have um, they all die from cirrhosis of the liver before their heart can kill them? But um, that's probably not anything even remotely accurate. Um, yeah. So, all right. So this is that is something that has been around for a while, and uh, as you say here, half of all, you know, alcohol cancer deaths in Canada are people drinking within the guidelines. What about in Australia? Do we drink? How, how many? What percentage of Australians drink at risky levels? Yeah. So about one in four Australians drink alcohol at at, at risk levels. Um, so you know, about 25% of the population. Um, it's interesting to note too that you know 25% of all frontline police officers' time is taken up with alcohol-related crimes, and one in four road fatalities um, can be attributed to to drink driving. So alcohol certainly affects other parts of the body with liver disease, stroke, um, injuries, etc. But really, the one I guess that's kind of changed the thinking on in terms of um, the benefits or otherwise of alcohol is, is cancer. Uh, with it being linked to, to bowel, breast, mouth, throat, esophageal cancer. But um, just particularly in terms of, of breast cancer, um, we see this dose-response relationship with alcohol. So even even just one standard drink a day, so like one glass of red wine a day, um, increases risk of breast cancer by 7% in, in females. And if you make that uh, two standard drinks a day, that goes up to 14%. Make it three, three drinks a day, that's 21%. So it's literally this linear relationship. Um, so really, when it comes to cancer, the safest level of, of alcohol consumption is really, uh, really nothing. Yeah, that's quite remarkable, and it's it's remarkable that just by counting the number of glasses that you have per day, and I think it is probably something our listeners can think about right now, is you know later on today when you sit down for a glass of alcohol. How much alcohol have you drunk this week, and therefore how much have you raised your level? your risk level of cancer by. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to have a glass of alcohol now, so how much do I want to raise my risk level by today? Will I raise it by 7%, 14%, or 21%? You know, it's... Um, yeah. it's it, should, we, should we be looking at having similar kinds of packaging on, you know, alcohol as we have on cigarettes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, 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 we're seeing also issues with, you know, um, mums who are pregnant, um, sometimes drinking as well, and, and you know issues with fetal alcohol syndrome as well. So there's been talk that, that we should have those same kind of warnings on, on alcohol products. And there's obviously been a bit of pushback from the um, alcohol industry about that. Um, but I think eventually we're going to see that because the research is fairly compelling that um, you know, when it comes to alcohol consumption, there is no 
absolutely safe safe level. Really, the guidelines are about, I guess, hard minimisation, but not hard elimination. Do you think we could have a scenario in which litigation drives restrictions on alcohol in the same way that it did with cigarettes? That's that's certainly a potential. Um, I think we're still a few years away, way off from that becoming a reality, but um, you know, the research I think is just as compelling um, in terms of, of these connections with um, alcohol and cancer risk. And, and perhaps at some points, if somebody um, decides that their, their cancer is alcohol-related and they, they feel like they weren't warned about it, um, who knows what can happen in terms of that, that litigation side of things. Mm. Now, um, Cancer Council, what has the Cancer Council got to say about um, alcohol and alcohol use? Yeah, so many of the leading organisations, including the Australian Cancer Council, they basically say limit your intake um, to no more than two drinks a day if you do drink. But um, they say if you don't drink, don't start. And um, even the Australian Heart Foundation have the same kind of guidelines. So, you know, they, they recommend that, um, you know, from a heart health point of view, you know, you do want to start drinking alcohol. I, I guess it's worth thinking about, you know, if alcohol was a medicine, um, and it had to get approved in Australia, would it get approved? And the, and the reality is no, um, due to all the, the harms associated with it. So even if there was a benefit from alcohol for heart disease, um, the side effects are such that you know, in terms of the society impacts, in terms of the individual impacts, um, that definitely wouldn't be approved. But um, you know, when we delve into some of the, the earlier research that looked at the benefits of alcohol for heart health, um, what they found was that uh, many of these individuals who made up the bond drinkers were reformed alcoholics and skewed the skewed the data. The other interesting thing was when you look at the data on on alcohol and heart heart disease um, in moderate drinkers, you tend to find that moderate drinkers are people who are more affluent, who can afford those expensive bottles of red wine, but also the gym memberships, you know, the the organic fresh produce, better healthcare compared to the non-drinking counterpart. So when you account for those disparities in terms of income, you find there is no net benefit when it comes to lowering risk of heart disease. Would that be a result of, would, would there also be an issue of, um, I guess, a cultural difference between people who drink wine as opposed to people who might drink beer that attributes to better health amongst wine drinkers than beer drinkers? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when, when, when you look at the research on heart disease uh, in the past, there uh, there wasn't a huge differentiation between alcohol and, and wine, although you know certainly if you look at you know why might wine be healthier, particularly red wine. People look at all the bioflavonoids and um, things like resveratrol, for example, which I should mention you can get from grape juice or eating grapes. It's not unique to the fermentation process, but um, yeah, certainly people who tend to prefer the red wine um, and the nice bottles, um, they have lots of other health protective um, aspects of their lifestyles. Um, that's that's a, that's a generalisation, but um, when you account for those, um, there, there's no net benefit when it comes to, to red wine consumption and um, and heart health. So I've got a number of friends who have a glass of wine, you know, once or twice a week, you know, something like that, maybe three times a week, and they, you know, typically say to me that they do it for their heart health, that, you know, they're... Um, They've got a little bit of heart disease happening and that this is something that they do as a form of medicine for their heart. Are they able to get all of the benefits just from pure grape juice without the alcohol? Yes, no, absolutely. And look, I think it's worth, worth highlighting those 
those um, Australian Heart Foundation guidelines, which recommend that if you don't drink, don't start uh, when it comes to your heart health. So, you know, we know things like having a healthy diet, exercise, um, uh, are really where you get the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to low risk of heart disease. But yeah, in terms of those those antioxidants that you get from red grapes, you get those same um, those same antioxidants from basically drinking red grape juice or a dealkalized version of red wine. Mm. Okay, so let's look at the social aspect. I just want to back up and talk about the social aspect because we kind of touched on this a little while back. Um, recently, we had um, a news report coming out out of. Uh, South Africa, which is a pretty violent country in many ways, and they were looking at how during the COVID crisis, at the height of the cri- at the height of the lockdown, their incidence of um, uh, violence within the home decreased dramatically, whereas most other countries there was a dramatic increase in domestic abuse. And the only significant difference was that they had not just closed their bars and pubs and those kind of things, but they'd also closed their bottle shops and stopped the sale of alcohol, and they found a dramatic reversal of that when the bottle shops reopened. Um, You know, intimate partner violence in Australia, alcohol, what's the relationship there? Yeah, no, you're right. So... I mean, in Australia, they, they quote that um, 34% of intimate partner violence um, is related to alcohol and 29% of family violence incidents are alcohol-related. So, I mean, when you look at those figures, um, you know, in terms of a, a cost to the nation, um, alcohol really comes in only second to, to tobacco um, in terms of its, its effects. But... Um, you know, it, it, is, it does have huge societal effects, and, and you're right in pointing out that during the COVID pandemic, we've, um, as a nation, actually become drinking more. Um, perhaps we have more time on our hands, um, and it's a way to, to perhaps drain our sorrows when we're feeling a bit anxious about what's going on in the world. Yeah, and with the potential of another lockdown coming to Australia, maybe this is something that you know our governments could look at to curb, you know, instances of domestic violence rather than just putting more police on, 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 the, uh, on the beat, so to speak, maybe close down the bottle shops and we'll be able to solve that problem a whole lot easier. Um, another, another point that I wanted to bring out on this, you know, we've, we've you know, the, the, the world is closing down as a result of COVID. There is, you know, public health measures taking place all over the place, you know, lockdowns happening tremendous expense the amount of money that is being thrown at it you know in lost income and so forth as a result of locking down you know from covid we've had a hundred some deaths here in australia how many people would die in australia each year from alcohol just to sort of compare the two yeah so according to the national alcohol strategy um they 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 quote that more than four thousand people every year um die to touch effects of alcohol so, and, and that, that's just death rates. We're not talking necessarily um, other alcohol-related harms that can occur as well. Um, so I guess that's a pretty extreme effect of the effects of alcohol is, is dying from alcohol-related um, issues. But um, obviously there's the social effects that are ongoing in terms of you know, domestic violence situations where kids witness those kind of issues. Um, some of that data is hard to, hard to track um, in terms of the effects of alcohol on, on families and children you know, used down the track. So the official number is more than 4,000. Mm. 
Yeah, and when you can, when you sort of look at that, that's up there with you know the death rates of some of the harder hit countries in our world as far as COVID goes, and so you know we've got a a crisis on our hands in many ways that um, is. Well, I guess the, the, the advantage of this one is that the cure is rather easy. We don't have to try and, you know, track down some kind of, um, um, you know, drug to be able to treat it with or vaccine. It's simply a matter of limiting or stopping altogether the sale of alcohol and it would be drastically uh, reduced here in this country. Yeah, no, you're quite right. Look, look it is worth highlighting too that, you know, alcohol... Consumption is decreasing amongst young people. So, you know, it is exciting to hear that young people are recognising the harms of alcohol and we are seeing trends downwards in the in, in, in this age age group. Um, it's probably really more the um, the baby boomer generations who are the ones who still like their their alcohol. Um, but at least the younger generation is starting to head in the right direction in terms of their alcohol intake. Yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, another statistic that I saw some time ago was that 56% of the population belong to a, uh, a part of the world that never, ever drinks alcohol. Dr. Paul Wood, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Question of the day. We've had one that has... Question of the day. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> yes. Liam Liam always gets me with that one. (laughs) I forget to do it. Question of the day is, did Joseph take advantage of his foreknowledge and turn the Egyptians into slaves? Okay, so let's uh, talk about this for a moment. Um, Joseph received a prophecy, seven years of um, plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So basically what was going to happen in the land of Egypt was going to be a massive drought. Now, it never rains in Egypt anyway, so how do you have a drought in a land where it never rains? Well, the way that you have a drought in a land where it never rains is when you have a drought further to the south. So you have a drought right down through Africa, right down as far as Lake Victoria. That means that the river doesn't flood. So the agriculture in Egypt was managed by the flooding of the river. When the river flooded um, during the flood season, that would provide for their irrigation so that they could grow. And so... Um, uh, Joseph recognizes that there'll be seven years of good flood followed by seven years of no flood. Now, if you're getting no flood, that's a very, very widespread drought. We also know that this drought affected um, you know, the whole area of Palestine, um, you know, right up through the Fertile Crescent, uh, was no longer fertile, and it lasted for seven years. Now, we've just come out of a major drought here in Australia, that did not last for seven years. I mean, the, the, the worst of it probably lasted about three years, and it was horrific. You know, we look at the desertification of large parts of Australia um, as a result of that drought, or nearly got there, and we're starting to see some of the gum trees coming back in places where we thought they were all dead. So a severe drought. He knows it's coming, and because he knows it's coming and he's got seven years to prepare for it, he gathers grain for seven years. Huge, enormous stockpiles of grain, the Bible says, and then the drought hits, and he waits, of course, for people to run out of their own stocks of grain, but then uh, uh, Joseph, as the Egyptian prime minister, is in charge of food stocks that can literally feed the world. And so the question that arises then is, 
what approach does Joseph have to dealing with this situation? Does he take a capitalist approach or a communist approach? Interesting. We will look look at that answer. So in Genesis chapter 41, verse 56 to 57, um, and this is basically a five-step process that he goes through. Step one is that he starts to sell the grain. So anybody um, from either Egypt or surrounding countries can travel to Egypt and buy grain. And historically, this explains the tremendous, the fabulous wealth that Egypt attained, particularly by the time uh, of Moses. You know, you, you're coming down another three, four hundred years later. Um, just unbelievable wealth. Uh, and it begins right here. And so the whole world within that region from, you know, Africa, um, Asia is all going to Egypt to buy grain because it's the only place where there is grain. Then what happens is that the people run out of money. Now, that's probably going to take place. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Probably in the first year or so because money, silver, gold, you know, those kinds of uh, commodities are you know not widely used in trade and so then they begin to barter for it so in genesis chapter 47 verse 15 to 17 you find that they are bartering um, their cattle so they sell their cattle for grain then next year comes around and they still don't have grain and then they sell their land for grain and when they sell their land for grain what joseph does in verse 21 is to move the people into the city so actually moves them off the land into the cities where he can better provide for their needs um, in a more efficient way because well there's no point being on the land if you can't grow anything anyway and so what we've got here is a system that you would say initially is a capitalist system because the people are not getting something for nothing he's not He's not setting up a welfare state. He's not handing out freebies. He's like, no, we have the grain and we will sell it to you. But it's also placed the people in a very difficult situation because now they have no land. They effectively become slaves. They're effectively owned by the government. They have lost a level of their independence and they are in a position where they're never going to be able to buy that land again. And so here comes step five. And then you find this in verse chapter 47, verse 23 to 24. Step five is that he makes the land available to them again. So when the drought is over, he puts them back out on the land. But once again, these are not free handouts because they have received a lot of grain um, over the years and they have sold their land. This land no longer belongs to them. But the land is made available to them for free with a 20% tax. So it's not entirely free, but it's a 20% tax. Now, of course, religious leaders and religious organizations under that system had uh, tax-free status. So Jacob did not forcibly take any land. Um, it was willingly sold for food. Um, he did not give free handouts. He did not create a welfare state. Um, the safety net that he, in, that he uh, created involved labor. This was labor for the government. It would be the equivalent of work for the doll, work for your social security check, etc. that we see in a lot of countries uh, today. And when he did give the land back, make it re-available to them, the tax at 20% is very, very reasonable tax. I wish in Australia we could have tax as low as that. Unfortunately, we do. Okay, so that's the system that Joseph set up in Egypt. Probably a whole lot more history we could give on that.